six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Douglas Haynes and I'll be your host for this hour. I'm also excited to be joined in the studio today by WRT host George Dreckman, who will be helping kick off our September pledge drive with me. Great to be here with you, George. Oh, it is. It's great to be with you too, Douglas, and sitting in on a, a great program, A Public Affair. Uh, I want to get to some of the quick things about our pledge work here. Give us a call at 608-256-2001 and go to extension 1. And Karen and Mary Joy will be on hand to answer, to take your pledge. We really would appreciate if you would do that. Or even uh, more conveniently, you can go online at wortfm.org and you can make your pledge there. Uh, we have a bunch of premiums for you. You can read about them. Just briefly, I know uh, at the $45 level, you can get a one-year a one-year subscription to uh, Progressive Magazine. That's something that's there for you. At the $100 level, we have the WORT Retro Airline Bag. And for this pledge drive, we have a brand new WORT hoodie at the $150 level. Or if you pledge $10 a month on uh, our Auto Give program, that's $120. You can get one of these sweatshirts. It's got that oval-shaped neon WORT bumper sticker right on the t on the sweatshirt but it's not the bumper sticker it's it's put on it's screen printed on that and you have a choice of three colors red black or purple i'm getting the purple and they're going to be available in sizes small through 5x we're going to special order those you won't be able to get them until november but just in time for cold weather when you need a hoodie so please 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 pick up the phone 256-2001 extension 1 or go online at wortfm.org Thank you, George. We'll be hearing more about Pledge Drive as we go through the hour. We've got a great show planned for you today that fits right in with conversation and reflection about the public value of wart and public value of storytelling and the kinds of stories you hear on wart. On today's show, we're going to talk about Wisconsin cultures, folklore, the power of public storytelling, and the Wisconsin idea. And we'll hear stories of the way folklorists are collaborating with Wisconsin communities to preserve and invigorate cultural traditions. In short, we're diving into culture work today, which is the title of a new UW Press book edited by our guests Tim Frandy and Marcus Cedarstrom. We're delighted to have Tim and Marcus with us today on A Public Affair. Tim is a Sami and Finnish-American born and raised in northern Wisconsin on the south shore of Gichigami, Lake Superior. They're currently an assistant professor of Nordic studies at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And Marcus Sederstrom works in the Department of German, Nordic, and Slavic Studies as a community curator of Nordic American folklore for the Sustaining Scandinavian Folk Arts in the Upper Midwest Project. He teaches Nordic American folklore courses and is co-editor of the book we're going to be talking about today, Culture Work, Folklore for the Public Good. Thanks so much for joining us, Marcus. Yeah, thanks for having us. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation about the power of storytelling, the Wisconsin idea, Wisconsin cultures. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us or reach out on Facebook. And Tim, I'd like to start the conversation today by having you tell us a little bit about this idea of culture work, what it is, and why you two were inspired to put together this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Marcus and I both work as folklorists in university settings. And one of the things you do is, you know, when you work in universities is you, you get exposed to uh, a lot of academic conferences. And the annual meeting of the American Folklore Society has always been really special in that way, because it's not just people doing, you know, book research and, and, and the like, but it, there's so many people who are what's called public folklorists folklorists who work 
in, com in communities, for communities, in museums, in archives, doing these massive projects internationally about documenting, preserving, and you know, enhancing culture in, in, in these ways. Um, so for a long time, people would talk about these differences between the research folklorists, the academic folklorists, and the public folklorists. But um, there's people doing this sort of work, this, this sort of culture work, uh, far outside our disciplines public historians, linguists, uh, anthropologists, people who work in public health, people who work in professionally in museums or archives, we're all doing this work together. So we were trying to create sort of this vision of that's more interdisciplinary and bigger than just folklorists working on folklory things. So uh, this is sort of the vision of the book and how these, these, all these aspects can work together to create a folklore, a humanities of the community and for the community. It's a great vision, and it really uh, came to fruition beautifully in the book. And I'd love to have you tell us some more, Marcus, about uh, the contributors, and in particular, the kinds of stories they tell. Give us some examples from the book of the amazing community projects that uh, Tim was just talking about. Yeah, I mean, we have, it's, it's a big book, right? Uh, we have like 34 different chapters, I think it is. And I mean, just a ton of different contributors, which, uh, makes for a really exciting, I think, kind of cross-section of this type of culture work. Uh, we've got things from the, the federal level, right? Uh, we've got a really wonderful, wonderful chapter um, by uh, Cheryl Shield on the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Heritage Fellowships. Uh, Wisconsin is, a, is home to several National um, Heritage Fellows including uh, a couple that Tim and I have worked with specifically, um, you know, Gizek, Wayne Ballier up in, in Lac de Flambeau. He was recently named a National Heritage Fellow. And, and Cheryl's work is a really beautiful kind of look at uh, the, the roots, I suppose, of this program. The, the National Heritage Fellowship is the highest honor that the United States can bestow upon a, a folk artist, a traditional artist. Um, and Cheryl kind of walks us through the importance of that program, the ups and downs when it comes to federal funding, uh, the, the need to kind of engage with that funding aspect um, to raise money. Uh, to encourage the arts, to support the arts, uh, that sort of thing. But we also then have, um, you know, community members who are working here. We've got a really wonderful chapter on revitalizing Franco-American song up in Vermont. Uh, that one is co-authored by several of the musicians and singers, along with an archivist, Andy Kolovos, uh, at the Vermont Folklife Center. It's a beautiful example of a community-driven program um, that brought together a wide range of people to learn and kind of revitalize these, not lost, but but songs that hadn't been sung actively for a while. Um, it's a really beautiful kind of example of community collaboration and the type of culture work that can happen from the grassroots uh, instead of someone coming in and saying, you know, oh, we need to save this culture. We have these musicians, we have these artists, we have these singers saying, we want to keep this going. We want to teach it to the next generation. How can you help us? Um, so I think that's a really big and important part of the work that uh, we've been trying to amplify these grassroots programs with the artists and the traditional kind of uh, culture bearers um, pushing, pushing the narrative. And all, the yeah. All kinds of cultural production, right, or cultural products. Um, you were just mentioning music, and uh, one of the chapters in the book tells the story of Arnold Monkel, an amateur field recorder of folk music in the upper Midwest, which um, you know, fits right into to Wart's wheelhouse, right? In fact, Wart is mentioned in this chapter. Tell us more about Arnold Monkel and the importance of his collection, which is housed uh, at UW-Madison. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful chapter written by, by um, Anna Rue and Nathan Gibson. And, and Nate is actually a co-host for um, Back to the Country on Wednesday mornings for WRT. Uh, so check that. It's a great show. Um, support that for sure. Uh, but, but Arnold Munkel's quite a character, 
right? So he's this older guy. He was living in and around kind of the Decorah, Iowa area. Um, and he decided that he was going to start recording music. So he's recording all this music from the various uh, live shows that are happening in, you know, the, the very Norwegian area of Decorah, Iowa. He's going to Nordic Fest um, and just taking his recorder with him everywhere he goes. And he's hitting record every time a song, a song starts and he's turn it off every time a song stops. Everyone knew this collection existed. They knew these recordings were somewhere, but Arnold Munkle died and the collection kind of disappeared for a while until one day it literally shows up in a box like uh, at the university um, and Jim Leary and um, Jeanette Casey at the Mills Music Library take this in and I don't think anyone really totally realized what a treasure they had on their hands when they start going through this and there are thousands of recordings uh and so what has happened in the last several years is nate and the mills music library have digitized these and put them up uh, online they're free to stream now um, this past semester we had beth rotto uh, an amazing fiddler from decora as a musician in residence she went through the collection started naming tunes figuring out tunes playing the tunes with an ensemble that she formed. So we see how this archival work, which we sometimes like get in our heads is like this dusty stuff that just sits in a box somewhere can be part of a living tradition and can be revitalized and sustained um, by the, by the, the work of artists and musicians. Um, check it out. It's a fantastic collection. There is some hilarious commentary from, from uh, Mr. Munkle. Um, it's just a really wonderful thing. It's available on the Mills Music Library website. And this is the kind of story and kind of resource that you can find out about on WORT and few other places, right? We have a midday conversation here about the wealth of cultural resources that folklorists are working with communities here in Wisconsin and elsewhere to create and, and uh, give access to, to the public. So just another reason to reach out and support WORT today. I'm going to turn it over to George to tell you a little bit more about uh, our pledge drive and what we're hoping to do today. Well, we do have, <clears throat> excuse me, we do have an online donor to thank, an anonymous, one of my favorite donors. Uh, she called and made a pledge. And uh, she listed her favorite uh, programs as Musica Antigua, Listen Adventurously, and I like it like that, which is a really good uh, uh, snapshot of all the different programming we have here in WORT. So we would like to thank you, too, and we would like you to call 256-2001, that's 608-256-2001, and go to extension 1 to make your contribution. Or, as our previous pledger did, go online, wortfm.org, and you can make your pledge there. Uh, it's very important uh, for you to support our station. You are the station, and you are the financial supporters of this station. So we really could use your help. Uh, what you have here at WORT especially with the public affair. Uh, my trip, uh, I just got back from a trip to St. Louis, and, uh, you know, the radio uh, airwaves are a wasteland. It's uh, right-wing talk and religion. And uh, we are uh, an oasis of uh, information here at WORT, local news, programs like this, like a public affair where we talk about these things and we give you the information you need to be a good citizen because democracy, as the Washington Post says, dies in the dark. So give us a call, 608-256-2001, extension 1, and Karen and Mary Joy will be taking your call or go on wortfm.org. And we also want to thank Ian's Pizza for giving us some food today. Shout out to Ian's and all of you who are listening. And please, as George says, join us uh, in supporting the public resource that is WORT, community-supported radio, in helping keep the power of public storytelling alive here and also celebrating the wonderful world of music that you can tune into at any given moment here on WORT. And we were just talking with our guest, Marcus Cedarstrom about uh, Arnold Munkel's 
uh, folk music collection here at UW-Madison and, and its connection to WRT. We're going to move into another kind of storytelling here and, and uh, highlight another example from your wonderful book, Culture Work, uh, and that is the story of the Oulu Cultural and Heritage Center in Oulu, Wisconsin. Uh, a really great story of collaboration between local residents, uh, Old World Wisconsin, and academic researchers. Uh, I'll throw it out to which, whichever one of you, Tim or Marcus, would like to tell us more about that story. Sure, sure. Uh, the, the Oulu uh, Cultural and Heritage Center is a f fabulous example, in, in many ways like the uh, Arnold Munkel example, of how communities really want to be engaged with the, the preservation, the revitalization, the sustenance of their, their own uh, culture, right? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm from northern Wisconsin, from not far from Olu, which is a very small town of probably a few hundred residents, um, kind of near um, uh, Brule, a little bit ways from Ashland area. And, uh, you know, the, the, in the far north like that, lots of these towns have had out migrations, but Olu is this pocket of Finnish uh, immigrant settlers who came into the area and um, were to, to, to have small uh, f f farms on, on in where there's a long winter and not great soil. Um, some worked in mines or, um, and, and the towns, have, like many towns up there, have had a lot of out-migration. Um, and so there's a lot of culture loss. I mean, in Finnish America, the, the settlements are few and far between, even in the upper Midwest. But this community in particular was really invested in preserving um, preserving some of the buildings and the, the, the culture and the language and the food traditions that they, 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 they've always had. So uh, Dwayne Lahti, who is a Finnish-American um, and was involved in th with some of the, the building work in Old World Wisconsin, was sort of inspired by the idea that happened you know, way downstate and decided to take these old buildings that were falling into disrepair and, uh, and start restoring them. You know, so traditional log cabins, smoke saunas, which is a really old uh, Finnish way to sauna without a wood stove where it's really smoky in and you clear it out uh, to, to agricultural buildings, to co-op buildings, and started, you know, not only restoring them, but also putting them on a shared singular site, which then became sort of a community center after they lost the co-op uh, some years back. There, there wasn't a place to even gather in the community and, and you know, share that sort of need to stay a community. So the, now uh, the Olu Heritage Center is uh, uh, responsible for, they teach summer school, summer courses there and finish. They bake traditional foods like pola, nisu. Um, they have um, a Yuhanus festival, a midsummer festival that's very popular and it's sort of a homecoming for the community. For everyone whose who's children and grandchildren couldn't stay, they can come back. Uh, it's uh, been a wonderful, um, uh, example of community-driven uh, culture work, uh, and and of course with some help from the the university too. Uh, university of Wisconsin PhD student Eva Johnson has been very involved with with helping to get grants and helping to teach language classes in Finnish, and uh, you know support this work, but not trying to lead in in the work. Wonderful example of uh, the Wisconsin idea at work, and, and you talk about this in the introduction, about the importance of the Wisconsin idea to public folklore and its influence on the field of folklore at UW-Madison in particular. Can you tell us about some of the themes that have emerged in the work of folklorists there at UW-Madison and how it connects to this idea of service to the the state? Yeah, so, so I mean, we... The Wisconsin idea, right, is this idea from like way back, hundred plus years ago. Charles Van Heys, former UW pre former, of course, he's long dead at this point. <laughs> UW president Charles Van Heys, uh, he said something along the lines of that he'll never be content until the beneficent influence of the university reaches every family in the state, um, and it's something we kind of get, you know, hammered home. Uh, and then, then we can ask and question and, and challenge whether we're living up to that ideal. But the ideal is there. Uh, and it's a really important one because we do so much on campus uh, from, you know, coming up with new cancer treatments to figuring out how to help with cultural sustainability in, you know, a small town in northern Wisconsin. Um, but the goal, I think, is really to kind of figure out how can we help 
the people we're working with? How can we serve not just the state, not just the region, but the, the, the broader public, whatever that public might be? Uh, and when it comes to, to folklore, I think what we see, especially at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, is really a kind of grassroots um, attempt at figuring out, like, how do we bring all this stuff into the classroom, right? Folklore is, it's the stuff that we don't necessarily read in books when we're in high school and elementary school. Um, it's the family stories that are meaningful and important to every single one of us but is not something that ends up in the school library. Uh, and, and the folklore classes, thanks a lot in, in part to, to um, Jim Leary and, and Janet Gilmore, who have since retired, uh, really work to get students to drive what it is we're doing on campus. Um, how can we be sure that the culture that these students are living in and around and with and creating is seen in the classroom every single day. So folklorists on campus at UW-Madison, and, and Tim is, is a product of that program, uh, are constantly working to figure out like, okay, how can we bring this into the everyday? Um, and not only that, but how can we amplify these stories in a way that legitimize um, and helps sustain them based on what these students are living, based on what the community is living and what the community needs. Uh, so I think those are kind of these themes that we see running through this like grassroots roots approach to folklore, to an amplification and a legitimization of the everyday lives of the people of the state of Wisconsin in this case. Um, it's key to what we do, I think. And uh, it reminds me it's key to what we do here at WRT as well, amplifying local culture, amplifying local stories, and... Uh, I want to make everybody aware that if you join us in this effort today to donate to WRT for our fall pledge drive, that you can be entered into the running for a copy of uh, Marcus and Tim's book, Culture Work, Folklore for the Public Good, which we're talking about today, uh, brand new from UW Press. So if this, these stories uh, spark your interest, give us a call, please. Um, George will tell you how here to, to uh, get in touch with us. Well, it is 608-256-2001. That is the phone number. And you can also donate uh, online at wortfm.org. We do have another anonymous donor to thank. And we thank you, but we are running a little bit behind our goal of getting a, a number of people to, getting 10 people to uh, pledge on the program. So this would be a good time for you to uh, get up there and dial 608-256-2001 and extension 1, or go to the website, wortfm.org. We would really like to have you uh Make that call or get online and uh, make that pledge uh, right now. It would be a big help to us. We're talking about uh, public institutions serving the public good, and that's a big part of Wart's mission here. And as Marcus was just telling us, a big part of the mission of scholars and folklore scholars in particular at UW-Madison. And Tim, you'd like to tell us a little bit more about the Wisconsin idea and folklore and the public humanities as well. Yeah, the, the, one of the interesting things about the Wisconsin idea is how over the past century, we've changed the way we understand it in many ways. So, you know, a lot of the earlier ideas of Wisconsin idea, and, and lots of this lingers today, is that it's sort of this like candle in, in the dark room metaphor, where the university is this illuminary force, and we need to project the light uh, that we we're shedding onto the, the ignorant dark masses of the state. It's, it's really kind of top down if you think about it a little bit, but this model still sort of endures today. But Janet Gilmore in, in, and I think Anne Pryor have written about something called the, the, the reverse Wisconsin idea and which is what Marcus is talking about in which we're not, the university people aren't just pushing knowledge out into the world, but are rather the, the people in community have valid knowledge that they bring into the classrooms every time we, we meet to teach, that they can bring into community programming, that they can bring into grant work. And so this flow going outward and inward, it's a circular pattern. And this is really, a, I mean, I think a much better way to understand the, what the Wisconsin idea 
should be doing. And our failure to understand that, you know, a century ago, you know, who, who is Wisconsin? Which publics are we serving? Which publics aren't we serving? Uh, um, you know, it's, it's very important to think about in terms of doing effective culture work. Uh, that's a really important point that you just mentioned, Tim, about which publics aren't we serving. Um, can you maybe highlight some examples from the book about stories that are highlighted there that uh, have not been served as well as they should be? Yeah, uh, one great piece is by Claire Schmidt, who is also from Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, she's done most of her work in, in prison systems, right? How do we understand the prisons, uh, prison systems in terms of the, the needs of the state, in terms of the public of Wisconsin? You know, we tend to, in, in, in terms of prisons to not want to look in very often, or when we do, it's, it's these sort of sordid, candid glances. But how can we view prisons, you know, in a more humanizing way, both in terms of in, inmates and, 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 and guards, who she works with primarily? How do we understand that story in terms of good of the state? Uh, you know, and, and to what extent does serving the good of the state, um, you know, require this isolation for, uh, of, of, of inmates? It's, it's, it's very problematic and complicated, and she plays a lot of these themes in really compelling ways. Marcus, are there any similar examples that jump out to you? Yeah, we've got this really wonderful chapter um, by David Fakunle, um about story t- using storytelling, essentially, for... Uh, kind of drug and alcohol rehabilitation and emotional transformation is is how he refers to it as. Um, And it's this really wonderful look at uh, this program that he's got going in Baltimore called Discover Me, Recover Me. Um, And it's it's doing just that, right? It's it's a way for people to use storytelling to work through uh, addiction issues, to work through trauma, to work through who they are, the discover me part, while working toward um, healing, right? And there's the recover me part. Uh, and it's a, it's a really wonderful look at how storytelling, something you all do really beautifully here, uh, plays such an important role in who we are in identifying who we are as individuals, but also as identifying who we are as part of a community. Um, and these the stories we tell help place us in that community. So, so David is working in public health and doing just incredible work uh, using those stories to see actual gains <laughs> in uh, in in the health and and well-being of the people he's he's working with and serving by amplifying their stories and and giving them space to uh, to tell those stories. These are really moving examples and uh, really point to the diversity of voices and stories in your book culture work and the diversity in stories uh, that academics and people curating folklore are involved in celebrating and cultivating and, and collaborating on. Uh, and you just mentioned, Marcus, about that concrete impact uh, on people's lives that this kind of public storytelling and public folklore can do. People might think, oh, folklore is maybe, they might come to it with this this idea that it's sort of an esoteric pursuit, that it's, you know, preserving history and culture is great. But what your book is really doing is highlighting folklore now as a living presence in the world and how it can bring people together. Um, Tim, could you tell us a little bit more about what you would say to somebody who says, well, how has uh, community-based folklore made a difference in the quality of people's lives? Yeah, I think that there's, in so many ways, the traditional conventional model of folklore was very much document culture, document stories, document songs, document cultural practices, and we will preserve them for posterity's sake. But you know what's more interesting than than that is actually being able to use what's collected and re uh, circulate it back into cultural practice. 
So we, we see that, for instance, in the, the Munkel collection, where all these old recordings of songs that most of many of which don't even have titles because they're, they're not known. But these are, are available online and any musician who is interested in Norwegian American folk music can pick these up and integrate them into their repertoire again. We see this um, with in Marcus's and Tom Dubois chapter on Finnish American folk song. Again, this, this emphasis is on taking stuff that's um, largely lost or, or unknown or preserved in archives and reintegrating it back in the community. So people can draw from their own traditions in order to create a future for themselves that they want, right? And I, th some people have described this, uh, Rick March and Janet Gilmore have talked about this in terms of the difference between preserving culture by, you know, if you have a cucumber, you can make a pickle out of it you can preserve it for a long time, but you're going to change that the nature of the cucumber, or what we prefer to do: take the seeds out of the, the cucumber and plant them. So you'll have you'll have cucumbers for for generations, but they're going to change. You're going to have different genetic modifications as tradition inherently changes over time. And uh, I'm going to pick up on your metaphor there, Tim. That's a wonderful way to think again about the work of WRT as well, that we're planting seeds for culture. And that's why we thought this um, book would be so appropriate for our conversation today. The book is Culture Work. And if you feel served by WRT, if you've ever tuned in and felt community, we want to hear from you today. All donors this hour will be entered in to receive uh, a copy of Culture Work. There are lots of other uh, rewards or, or benefits to uh, donating today, George can tell you about that, but of course the biggest benefit, benefit is that sense of community that we gain from participating in, in these conversations. It is, uh, and the more I fill in on different areas, the more I, I'm exposed to that community, and I'd love to see someone call in here and claim one of our uh, advertising uh, sweatshirts, uh, one of our new WORT sweatshirts. Uh, at the $150 level for a one-time gift or $10 a month uh, in our uh, uh, Evergreen program. Uh, and you can choose from red, black, or purple. And uh, they're available in sizes small to 5X, so you can get your color and your size. And uh, we'll get them to you by November if you call now at 256-2001. Extension 1-608-256-2001. 608-256-2001. And Karen and Mary Joy are standing by uh, to answer your call. Or you can go to wortfm.org and pledge online. We'd love to have you do that. If I might, I'd like to ask a quick question. Uh, I'm a history major, and history has always been my my, my passion. And, uh, you know, there are some areas of history where the only thing we have as a record is oral tradition, uh, especially from the indigenous peoples. But this is still, how, what kind of interactions do you have or have you seen between the, uh, you know, the kind of stories you collect and how, and interacting with, uh, historians who are trying to write, uh, a history of an event or of a of an area or people. Tim or Marcus, want to jump in with yeah. that? Uh, I would see public. I mean, I've always seen public historians as a, a sort of a cousin discipline to what folklorists do. Um, mm. We've always uh, we share in collecting stories to understand people and and, and culture. Um, and, you know, there's a long history of collaboration, especially in museums where public historians and, and folklorists uh, often commingle. So, yeah, there's, there's really considerable overlap. And I think we're seeing more of a kind of approach to the, the everyday, the history of the everyday, uh, yes. which is a lot of the work that we're doing in, in folklore, right? Looking at how do, we, how do we live these lives every single day? And as you pointed out, a lot of the stuff isn't written down. So what are we what are we working with? Uh, we're working with fragments, and we're trying to piece together a bigger picture to better understand the world that was, so that we can understand the world we're in, and hopefully create a better world to come. Uh, so all of these things play a role, uh, 
and and it's a really important thinking about when we talk about history and folklore and, and oral tradition and um, making sure that we're recognizing and and uh, kind of working with those traditions in a way that's respectful to the community but also um, notes just how important it is to the world we live in today. We're talking with folklorist Marcus Cedarstrom and Tim Frandy, who have just uh, co-edited a book called Culture Work, Folklore for the Public Good. We're talking about public storytelling here on WRT-FM on a public affair today. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook, and we're uh, doing a pledge drive right now as well. And we'll continue talking about that over the course of the hour. But I'm going to dive a little deeper here with Marcus and Tim to talk about some of the challenges of public folklore today. What are some of the challenges of doing this kind kind of collaborative public work. Uh, another prong to that question might be, uh, how has digital media changed how folklorists can reach and work with the public? What can you tell us about contemporary challenges of this kind of work? Uh, <laughs> I mean, COVID's been a thing, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we can talk about the big picture stuff, right? And just like lack of funding. Uh, there's a lack of state and federal support for this type of work. There's, there's just no way around it. Um, and it needs, it needs to change. Uh, this is super important to the lives of the people that um, the state and federal government purport to be serving. Uh, and, and we can make a huge difference uh, by supporting the arts, by supporting traditional culture, uh, by supporting music, the, these sorts of things. There's a ton of research showing that that is the case. This is not just some like rant by a folklorist uh, who believes that. Um, so so that's, that's a key aspect to it. But the, the pandemic has been an interesting challenge uh, and also an opportunity when it comes to, as you just asked about digital media. Um, one of the things that we've seen is an ability to kind of reach a wider audience because of our ability to move things online. However, that's also tough, right? Some things don't work as well online. It's difficult to uh, to kind of really get the feel for, um, I don't know, rose mauling, uh, watching a, a Zoom showing, right? Um, at the same time, we've been playing with different models to kind of amplify this work. So, so we've actually got a show coming up here in uh, October, October 4th on campus at 6 p.m. We're bringing a Swedish folk band over. Uh, and what we did was a while back, we had them perform on Zoom. Um, it was just a short one hour performance. It was great. Uh, since then, we've also then worked with them to uh, kind of record basically like music videos. Those are up on YouTube now. Those are being used in classrooms here on campus uh, in folk folklore classrooms and, and the, uh, the music school. They are then going to be performing live on October 4th. So we kind of piece together this like digital aspect, right? We can introduce people to these Swedish musicians in a really intimate way. Uh, we can bring them into the classroom. Um, we can think about the different aspects of folk music and what it means, uh, looking at immigration, looking at you know, labor issues for this particular show. Uh, and then we can have them perform and meet with the students in person. Uh, it's a really great model for kind of hammering home uh, how folklore is still a living tradition, how students can engage with it, how community members can engage with it. Um, so that's a fun way of kind of using that hybrid model, the digital aspect to really create um, the opportunities to, to spread that, the word and, and get a bigger audience um, while also bringing them in person. Tim, I don't know, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, obviously funding is, is a huge problem. Um, I know, I think Wisconsin, if I recall, seeing a couple months ago is maybe 49th in the country on, on state arts funding per capita. It's, it's really abysmal, which is as a, you know, almost a lifelong resident of the state. It's incredibly depressing and short-sighted, um, you know, and, and in terms of funding stuff, I, I've always thought um, that, you know, culture is actually a really effective investment, you know, not to sound like an economist, but in, if, if you're having problems in schools, uh, if you're having problems in your healthcare systems, if you're having problems in your environmental management, 
the cultural factors really are central in all of this stuff. And research has shown this time and time again. One of the most important, interesting studies I've seen in ages um, came out from the University of Alberta, was looking at First Nations communities. And it was clear that the communities that invested most in cultural programs and language maintenance had lower diabetes rates. It was like 1.2% diabetes for uh, communities that had high cultural investment and up to 20% for the communities that did not. The, the difference is it's shocking. And, and we work cheap we, because we're used to working on low budgets. So I, our investment in culture is more than just something that's pretty to look at, you know, colorful displays of traditional, you know, arts and cultural practices. This is really, really good and necessary for our, our health care for our educational systems to work, for our environments to be healthier, especially if you're looking from indigenous perspectives. Culture really, really matters. Uh, beyond that, you know, the, there are some serious problems, I think, nationally in terms of how the infrastructure works. I mean, we're, a lot of culture workers are centered at universities or at big government institutions, and it requires a lot of mobility from individuals. So, you know, I, I, look, I just moved to Vancouver, BC, um, because I, I for, for work, um, taking me, I, what, 2,500 miles, 2,000 miles away from my, my main field work sites in northern Wisconsin. Um, the, the, the lack of ab- people, ability for people to stay in communities that they care about while working is, is a pretty serious problem and, and very jarring for a lot of us who well, work with the community for 10, 15, 20 years. And then we have to pick up and move just because that's what's expected of us to be able to pay our bills. Thank you, Tim. And what you're saying about investment in culture really resonates uh, with me personally, and it it resonates with why I came here to WRT to uh, create public conversations and uh, broaden the diversity of perspectives and voices and topics that we can hear out there on the radio in the media right now. And so you can think of pledging for uh, pledging to WRT as an investment in culture. If you care about the issues that Tim was just mentioning, education, healthcare, uh, ecological health, these are all issues that have to do with values, human values. And that is what we're talking about so often here on A Public Affair, is human values and how we forward and advance values that create healthy societies. And as a professor at uh, UW Oshkosh, I came here because I believe in the Wisconsin idea. And then I I came on to WART this year because I believe in uh, having more public forums or or adding my voice to uh, a a broader audience to create these conversations around values and what's important, as Marcus and Tim were just talking about. So this is your chance. We uh, would love to hear from you. A few more folks here in the 10 minutes or so we have left this afternoon. Please share your investment in culture with us. And George is here to tell you a little bit more about how to do that. Right. Uh, we really do need you to pick up the phone and call 608-256-2001 or to go to our website, wortfm.org. We're running uh, short of our goal to get uh, 10 callers. Uh, we haven't done that. And uh, we would like you to step up and do that for us, 608-256-2001 or wortfm.org. Now, it doesn't matter how much uh, you pledge. If you can only afford $5, that's fine. We're happy to take your pledge for whatever amount works for you. But the important thing is that you call or go online and that you pledge. 608-256-2001, and you can talk to Karen and Mary Joy, or go to wortfm.org. At our website, you can see the premiums that we have and at the various levels that we have them. Uh, We would love to have you do that. It's very important to keep WORT on the air and running. 
We're in the process right now of trying to repair and replace all of our soundboards. Hopefully, this is the last pledge drive we're going to ask for money to pay for those soundboards. We have to raise money to cover our operating expenses, and then we also set aside a certain amount for long-term investment, and that's an important long-term investment we have to make because they don't make parts for our soundboards anymore. And if we don't have a soundboard, we're not on the air. So 608-256-2001, extension 1. W-O-R-T-F-M dot O-R-G. Think of this as an extension of investment in public infrastructure. We need your help creating public infrastructure here at WORT. And we also really want to give away Tim and Marcus's wonderful book, Culture Work, this hour. So please, in these last 10 minutes with us on A Public Affair, join our community conversation, contribute to culture. And we're going to talk here in the last 10 minutes with Tim and Mark up. Marcus, excuse me, about the joys of culture work and what they have learned from uh, community collaborations, both in your own work and some of the stories that uh, your collaborators tell in this book are also full of joy. So what what do you find in community collaboration that is joyful and uh, what have been the biggest lessons for you? Uh, Marcus, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, right? That's kind of a trite answer, but it's really fun to be working with these amazing artists, these amazing community members who are experts. And it's one of these things where you go into a community, you you start working with with an artist and like, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm I'm not very good at this. And then you see the work that they're doing, you're like, oh, no, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, It's just a beautiful kind of... It's a beautiful sense of community that, that is created when you're working with um, people who believe and uh, kind of trust in the arts and, and the traditional culture that they work in and with. Um, I think a lot about the work that Tim and I have done up in Lacta Flambeau uh, with, with Wayne Valier and um, the Lacta Flambeau Public School up there. and. Uh, just the not just the the actual products right like there's this wonderful birch bark canoe that now hangs uh in the university of wisconsin madison at the jope um hall uh it's beautiful wayne built it while on campus he built it in, in collaboration with with artists on campus but really with a bunch of students and students from lack of flambeau public school so the pro- the products are beautiful um but i think it's the community that comes from it the you start to see more and more students from Lacta Flambeau on campus, for example. Um, we're seeing better high school graduation rates up there. You know, Tim spoke to the the health aspects and the education in our own work. Um, and there's a sense of satisfaction, to be perfectly like honest and sort of selfish, in, in helping and doing that type of work with people who are driving the projects themselves. So we're lending our help and we're lending what expertise we have but we're just along for the ride and doing what we can. Um, but in doing so, that sense of community, I think, is just absolutely key to what public folklore is and what culture work is. Beautiful. And that thread of community has, has come all throughout our conversation today and in your book as well. Tim, joys of public folklore, joys of culture work. I, yeah, I'll pick off or pick up where Marcus left off on the canoe project. Um, one of the amazing things about building a birch bark canoe, which, which I mean, it takes a couple months of harvesting. You're going to you're looking at six weeks to construct it. It's a really difficult form, and because it takes so long, it's really such a community centered uh, process, right? And when we ran the birch bark canoe project in Madison, there were probably a thousand. 1500 people who put their hands on the canoe, who worked on it, who, who, who put their good energy and good intentions into the canoe. And in doing so, we were all, uh, what, whether we're not, we we're just visitors or, or folklorists or artists or, or Lacta Flambeau public school students who came down to campus, we were all part of building something bigger than ourselves. And that, that made it special and made it important. And everyone understood that they were a part of something that was important. And what, what makes it important? I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's not just that we made a canoe. It's that we, that 
we chose to do something that would be important. It's really kind of a complicated thing. Um, the other example that always comes to mind is the Ojibwe Winter Games, a week-long competitive festival um, run at, at, at Lac de Flambeau uh, for grades fifth through eighth grade. They tr participate in traditional games like snow snake throwing, the hoop and spear game, uh, Apakonatik, which is like an atlatl game that's, that's a people play. Uh, every every day, kids get medals for competing in this, and we brought students from UW Madison up for, I think this is the eleventh year we're going into, and every time we bring up students, every time we school kids participate, they come back transformed because what was happening is something very special and very magical, and it's not just playing the games to play the, the games for the sake, and it's not reenacting and trying to pretend we're something we're not like, you know, people in, you know, 1600s before missionaries came into the area. We're doing something different, and it's it carries this power within people, and we're not just doing the thing, we're using this thing to transform young people, to plant the seeds of identity within them that are going to grow their whole lives. And so as a folklorist, as an academic, as a public worker, this sort of thing is the most beautiful thing and best part of my job. Lovely, lovely. Thank you, Tim. Uh, we're doing this thing together, Tim said, about public folklore, and that's, of course, exactly what we're doing here at WRT. And I'm reminded of, I was reminded as I was listening to you, Tim, uh, speaking of the impacts on young people, I first encountered WRT as a senior in high school more than 30 years ago when I was wandering the tables at Willie Street Fair, and it was sort of an aha moment for me. I didn't know that community media existed. I didn't know radio could be so diverse. That's what I still really value about WRT. I hope you listening out there value that as well and will show us how much you value it by com contributing today during our fall pledge drive and remind everybody about the power of public storytelling. And that is exactly what we've been hearing about from Marcus Cedarstrom today and Tim Frandy. I am so excited and honored to have had the chance to speak with you both today. We've been talking with Dr. Tim Frandy, Assistant Professor of Nordic Studies at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and this book with us, Tim. Thanks so much for having us. And we've also been talking with Marcus Cedarstrom, folklore curator and lecturer in Nordic Studies at UW-Madison. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Thank you so much, Douglas. It's been a lot of fun. And their new book is Culture Work, Folklore for the Public Good, published by UW Press. You call in. You can still get in for uh, el being eligible for getting a copy of that book. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank my Pledge Drive colleague, George Dreckman, today. Thank you for being with us. George, you want to give us that phone number one well, more yes, time? Well, yes, I do. It's 608-256-2001 and hit extension 1 or wortfm.org. We really do need your support, so please, please, please give us a call. These are the stories you can only hear on WORT. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, everybody's help today. Shally, news director, for getting us ready for Pledge Drive. Andrew, our engineer, our producer, Rochelle. And we have some donors to thank. Uh, Ian's Pizza. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we have uh, a food donor, Ian's Pizza, to thank, and we have people answering the phones today, Karen and Mary Joy, for our pledge drive. Thanks to all of you for helping out. You've been listening to A Public Affair here on WORT 89.9 FM. Up next is Madison Bookbeat. I can take you to another mental level. Six foot six, I'm on sea level. I grab the